The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good evening, guys. Hey, would you guys grab your Bibles and stand and turn to Matthew chapter 9, verse 9? Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. We stand in respect to God's Word as a symbol to say, God, we're not here to hear from Sam. <laughs> we're here to hear from the Scriptures because this is what we have chosen to stake our lives on, the truth of God's Word. Amen? Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus at his, uh, and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Father, tonight we bow ourselves before the authority of your scripture. God, tonight we, we choose to place our ears and our minds and our hearts and our souls under the authority of your word. We believe that you are who you said that you were. We believe that you are God. We believe, Jesus, that you came and atoned for sins, that you rose on the third day, that you ascended to the right hand of the Father, that you're making a place for us in eternity forever, that you will establish your kingdom like you said that you did. We believe that the Holy Spirit is present here as you said that he would, ready to lead us and guide us in all truth, ready to make much of you, Christ. And Lord, tonight, I pray that we would approach the word with great adoration, ready and waiting to be spoken to by the living God. Lord, humble our hearts to see where we may have gone off. And Lord, we will know if it's you because, God, you give us great joy. Lord, we don't desire condemnation tonight, not another, not another thing on our list to do. We simply want to be reminded of what you've done for us. And we pray tonight, Jesus, that you would speak through us as we talk about how to be like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Grab a seat, guys. So we're in a series called Be Like Jesus, which has been really awesome. The point of the series essentially is, as it says, to learn how to be like Jesus, okay? Rocket science, right? So we are taking sort of an attribute, if you will, something that Jesus did well every single week, and we're kind of digging into it and asking the question, how did Jesus do this, and then how do we do that? So tonight, we're going to talk about the mercy of Jesus, how to be merciful like Jesus. Uh, the mercy of God, the mercy of Jesus is probably the most misunderstood and assumed attribute of God. 
When I heard I was going to be teaching about the mercy of Jesus, I'm like, oh, that's easy. Mercy. Everybody gets what mercy is. Everyone understands what mercy is. That's like fundamental to the Christian faith, right? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized I don't think I really know what mercy is, actually. At least not what the biblical definition is. It's kind of, it kind of reminds me of this. A couple days ago, my daughter and I were going on a walk, and um, she's, getting, she's almost four years old, and she's just getting very inquisitive, and she's really good at asking these questions that just really zing me. Um, and uh, like you, think you're, you think you're smart, and you can answer a four-year-old, um, but man, they come up with the best questions. So we're walking, and she says, Daddy, why does Jesus love us? And my initial reaction is like, oh, that's easy. And then I was like, uh, I d- you know, it's <laughs> a good question. And, and, and I answered her, and I don't know if it was the best way to answer her, but I, I, I realized in that moment that sometimes we assume that we understand things until we actually have to explain them. <laughs> if you would have asked me, Sam, what is the mercy of God? I would say, oh, yeah, um, I know what the mercy of God is. Uh, it's like grace and forgiveness and all that stuff. It's all like kind of in the same bucket, right? It's all kind of like uh, interrelated to all those good and compassion. It's all the same thing, right? Well, no, not really. Not, not exactly. Uh, and so what my daughter revealed to me in that moment through her, her very, very incredible question uh, was that I actually needed to think about that. And the question of why does God love us, or maybe more fitting for tonight, why is God merciful uh, is probably the most assumed question. Now, in the West, we have no problem thinking about the fact that God is merciful, right? We like that. Because in the West, we're really good at letting ourselves off the hook. Um, we're really good at forgiving ourselves for things. Um, you know, why wouldn't God be merciful to me? I mean, everyone likes me. I like me. I'm awesome. Why wouldn't God think I'm awesome? And, and it was funny when Myla asked me that, my initial reaction was almost to go to, like, the Western mindset, which is like, of course God loves me. Of course Jesus loves me, right? I'm awesome. No, that's not it at all. You're wrong, okay? Uh, Most of the world actually doesn't assume God's mercy. Most of the world actually assumes the opposite. Most of the world actually assumes God is not merciful, and that's why we have so many religions that are people working to earn God's mercy. It's really a Western phenomenon that we think and assume the mercy of God. So not only do we assume what it is, we also assume that we get it and that we have it. Now, the angels look at the mercy of God, and they are completely dumbfounded by it. They go, how could God be merciful to these humans? Now, if the angels, if these, these, uh, these angelic beings look at the mercy of God and they're confused by it, then how much more should you and I tonight stop, take a minute, and think, what is this thing called mercy? And, and, and maybe we should think about how should we reflect it? How should we reflect it? The reality is the question we should be asking is not... Why is God merciful? It's how in the world is God merciful? How is God merciful? How is the perfect, holy God of the universe who can have no part with sin merciful to you and I? I look back at the narrative of Scripture and I think, God, why were you merciful in the garden? Why didn't you just start over? I mean, Adam was a bonehead and he represents us all. He did what we would do, right? So why didn't God just say, you know what, let's start over, uh, humans 2.0. I mean, that's what Apple does, right? Hey, let's make a new iPhone. The other one was okay, let's make a better one. Why didn't God do that? Why did he let Adam's genes continue to carry through billions of human beings? Because he's merciful. In the days of Noah, when there was nothing but wickedness on the earth, why did God mercifully maintain one family so that you and I are still here? Because he's merciful. 
Why did God offer to Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah to spare this wicked, evil city if there was only a few people there that were righteous? Because he's merciful. Why? And the sacrificial, why did God create a sacrificial system that allowed mankind to continue to come back to the mercy seat for forgiveness? Because he's merciful. Why did God restore Israel after the Babylonian captivity? Because he is merciful. It should baffle us. It should confuse us, confound us as to why God is so merciful in the first place. That's the better question to ask. The reason he is merciful is because, this is going to sound like an oversimplification, but bear with me. The reason he is merciful is because, listen, he is merciful. The reason he is merciful is because He is merciful. He is the source of mercy. Everything in this world that it it resembles any kind of mercy is directly attached to God because at his nature, in his core, is an attribute called mercy. Every social justice that happens in this world, every mouth that is fed, that is starving, uh, everything that is taken care of, every person that is redeemed, everything that is happening, every breath that you're taking into your lungs, every common grace that you experience is all the mercy of God. It all links back to him. He is the source of mercy. He is where mercy comes from and comes out of. Now, here's the miraculous thing is that not only is God merciful, but yet he wants to translate that mercy onto the world through vessels. God chooses to actually translate this attribute of himself, that he is merciful, to translate it through vessels. He did it through angels, by speaking the truth of God. He does it through, he desired to do it through Israel. He does it through the church, through you and I. And ultimately, and primarily, he translates his mercy through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So all of that is a roundabout way to saying, if we're going to study the mercy of God, we have to look at the person who perfectly represented God, and that was Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you look at me, you're looking at the Father. So to see how God is merciful, we have to see how Jesus is merciful. And to see how we should be merciful, we have to see how Jesus is merciful. Amen? We have a call to be merciful. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, he said, Blessed are the, what, merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What Jesus is saying there is he's saying to be a believer is to be merciful. If you're not merciful, then you're probably not a believer. There is a connection here. When you become married to Christ, an attribute of his is passed on to you, and that is this mercy Now, the questions I want to ask tonight, the questions I want to press into in our text are are these. Number one, how is Jesus merciful? How is Jesus merciful? I want to ask, how can we be merciful? And thirdly, I want to ask, what is mercy? So these are some of the questions, hopefully, that we'll get to tonight. So let's get into the text. I'm going to park myself in Matthew chapter 9 because I don't want you guys to go away feeling like, oh, that was uh, an okay teaching. I want you to go away feeling like, wow, I love the Bible. I love Matthew chapter 9. It's incredible. I can't wait to read it some more. So we're going to park ourselves in these few verses, and hopefully you guys will walk away understanding better Christ's mercy through this story. So let's go verse by verse. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, Jesus has been healing around the Capernaum area, the Galilee area. He's been healing and healing and healing. And the narrator here stops for a moment and injects a personal story. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called, what? Matthew. Who is Matthew? 
Matthew is the one writing this gospel. Matthew, the disciple. Okay, so it's actually really interesting here because here the author is actually interjecting his story of conversion. His moment where everything in his life changed. And Matthew, as we'll find out, is actually a pretty humble guy because he condenses his entire story into one sentence. Okay, literally. He's like, this is how I met Christ right here. Boom. Okay, let's keep going. One verse contains the conversion of Matthew. So Matthew was not only a disciple and a gospel writer, but Matthew had a certain occupation. And I want to talk a little bit about that tonight because it's key to understanding the text. Matthew was what was called a tax collector. Okay, And you might be thinking, um, cool, yeah, I know some tax collectors, right? I know some people that work for the IRS. You know, that's no big deal. Okay, well, um, the, the, the author here of this gospel would not have had to explain to you guys what I'm going to have to explain to you guys. Because everyone that would have read this in the time of Jesus would have known exactly what the words tax collector meant. There would have been a certain stigma, an attachment to those words that they would have gone, oh, oh, he was a, I'm sorry, he was a tax collector? Jesus is not just calling anyone. He's calling a tax collector. What is a tax collector? This is what a a tax collector in um, Palestinian uh, Middle East in Jesus' day, this is what a tax collector was. If you remember, Rome is the world ruling empire. And one of the areas that they rule is Israel. And so because of that, they tax Israel. They tax Israel. And the way that they would do that is they would hire locals. Actually, they wouldn't hire. They would contract out locals to collect those taxes. And they had a really smart but evil way of doing that. They would allow people like Matthew to bid on these taxes. The person that was the tax collector would pay off Rome, and then they would go and collect after the fact. Okay, um, so, so essentially, they pay Rome, they go, they collect the taxes. Now, they made commission by charging people more than they should have been charging. So they, ro- they, they owe Rome $100,000, they pay Rome $100,000, then they go collect $500,000, and they can do it because they have Rome backing them up, and the power of Rome backing them up. These are crooked men. These men were the, listen, I'm not over-exaggerating here. These men were the most despised human beings in Judea. The most despised human beings by Jews in Israel. They were considered to be traitors. Why? Well, because they are selling out to their people, working for Rome, whom the Jews hate at this time. The Jews despise Rome because Rome is their oppressor. They're waiting for Messiah to come free them from Rome. Okay, they hate Rome. So here is the tax collector who is working for Rome. They hate him for that reason. By nature of being a tax collector, they come into contact with Gentiles, which makes them unclean, which means, gent- or which means tax collectors were not allowed to go into the synagogue. They were considered as unpure as swine. They were abhorred because they were wicked and crooked and made a living taking advantage of the common people. Now, let me drill down just a little bit more further on this. There were two kinds of tax collectors, okay? There were two kinds of tax collectors. The first kind of tax collector was sort of your everyday tax collector. And, and, and the, the Greek word for that tax collector was goodbye. Don't ask me how to spell it. I don't know. Goodbye. I just, I just made it up. Uh, not the word, but the spelling, okay? Uh, the goodbye tax collector. Now, what these guys did is they essentially were, were, were commissioned to collect the general taxes, the ones that everyone's used to paying. Okay, I get it. Property tax, take it. Okay, income tax, take it. Okay, uh, a tax for just being alive, yeah, okay, we all get that. Citizen tax, take it, whatever it is, you know? 
We're used to getting those taxes. And the Gapai, they were, they were despised just like all the other tax collectors. But, you know, you kind of knew it was coming. So that was one class of tax collector. Then there was a second class of tax collector. And these were the ones that were really despised. These were called the Molech tax collectors. Now these guys, they didn't tax the taxes that were considered normal. They taxed on top of those. So they would literally tax for, listen, for everything. They were the crookedest of the crooks. Everything they could possibly, a toll for passing through a road, a toll for catching fish, a toll for transporting goods. And they would charge massive amounts on top of what they were supposed to. These men were despised. So you have goodbye and you have Molech. Now, in the Molech tax collectors, you actually have two different kinds within that. And that's getting crazy here, right? Two different kinds of Molech tax collectors. You had the kind that were at least dignified enough to not do their own dirty work, so they would pay someone and hire someone to go and actually ring out the Jewish people for this money. And then you had the lowest of the low, with the, the, the Jews jokingly referred to as the little Molech tax collectors. And these were the guys that were so cheap, they wouldn't even pay someone to do it, their dirty work. And they cared so little for their social rapport that they would actually station themselves and personally rob and crookedly take money from these people, from their own people, the little Molech. Which one do you think Matthew was? <laughs> Matthew, the little Molech, the little tax, the, 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 the scum of Capernaum. The worst man in town, the man that has ripped off every single person. Now, let me put this into a modern context for you guys because I don't want us to miss this, okay? This isn't the guy on the corner with a crack uh, a pipe. This isn't the guy with a needle in his arm. This isn't the woman who, who's being promiscuous or the man who's sleeping with another person. This isn't the guy who's just caught in sin. This is the guy who owns the brothel. This is the guy who's made a fortune selling drugs to our kids. This is the guy who, who, who sells prostitutes that he's taken into slavery. Are you getting the picture here? This is the guy that has made a fortune. He's not some poor guy living on the corner, okay? He's got a big house, and he's bought that house at the cost of every single person in town. And everybody knows it, and everybody hates him, and everybody wants him dead, and there's nothing they can do about it because Rome backs him. This guy is filth. He's filth, and everyone in town knows it. Everyone knows it. This is whom Jesus walks up to and says, you. Out of everybody in there, okay? Out of everybody in there, he walks up to Matthew and he says, you. You are coming with me. You are coming with me. He says, follow me. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man and called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And what? He rose and followed him. He rose and followed him. Let me explain something to you here. The cost for Matthew, first of all, would have been great. Hey, this isn't like Peter, who is a fisherman, and he can leave his nets and go off and have a three-year party with Jesus and then come back and pick up his nets again. If Matthew forfeits his position with Rome, they won't give it back. This means he loses everything. He loses it all. And Jesus comes up and he says, hey, it's time to let go of everything you're doing, 
and it's time to come with me. And he doesn't even bat an eye. He gets up and he goes. Now that's kind of a, a, a vertical or horizontal, I should say, level. Look at that moment, this moment where Matthew's heart is pounding because Jesus just walked in the room. And, and the last thing in the world Matthew would have thought would have happened is that Jesus would point at him and say, would you come with me? He's completely blown away. He's completely shocked. But, but there's more than just that happening. You see, before the foundations of the earth, God called Matthew. Before, the fa- before Adam sinned, uh, f- another covenant was made between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit in which they chose Matthew, that he would be one of God's people. And in that moment, you know what happened? The sheep heard his shepherd's voice. What does Matthew have to think about? This is who I am. He's overwhelmed by this scandalous mercy that Jesus, the rabbi, the son of God, the Messiah, would actually point at him and invite him to be his apprentice. It's blown away. Absolutely blown away. Next verse. Verse 10. Jesus reclined. As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So what's happening here is Matthew is overwhelmed by this mercy of God. The first thing he does is he goes out and he gets his friends. Because what? Sinful people know sinful people. This is how the gospel has spread for 2,000 years. This is why when people first get saved, they're the most incredible evangelists because they have inroads to the lost that you and I who have been sitting in Christian culture for too long, not too long, for however long, um, don't have, right? We only hang out with Christians. Matthew, man, he's got inroads to the worst people in town, and he invites them over to his house for a party, okay? He invites them over to his house. They're lounging there. The disciples are there. It says specifically that the sinners and tax collectors are there. So we know who the tax collectors are. Who are the sinners? Okay, so sinners in the the New Testament essentially means anyone who was Jewish that was not obedient to the law of God, okay? So this is the crew that you just don't want to be in, Okay, the crew that you just don't want to be in. And one thing I, want to, I should have pointed out before we got into this text is that this story, one of the most incredible things about this story is the polarity of the two characters that we're going to look at. We have, on one hand, the scum of Capernaum. On the other hand, we have so-called righteous and holy. Okay, so this is the setting. A party is thrown at Matthew's house, probably on the dime of all of the people that Matthew has ripped off, which makes it even more scandalous. And here come the Pharisees. They don't go inside lest they be defiled, right? The Pharisees stand outside and they watch and they observe. Now let's pause here. Who are the Pharisees? Okay, who are the Pharisees? There's some confusion about the Pharisees because people get them confused with the Sadducees. And they weren't the Sadducees. The Pharisees were not necessarily the richest people in town, but they were the most religious people in town. Not the most richest, but the most religious. The Pharisees were the ones that everyone saw walk down the street and thought, that is the crux of being godly. 
If, if you were to ask someone what does it look like to be perfect before God, they would point to the Pharisees. Their occupation was full-time holiness. Their occupa- they, they were literally full-time devoted to not offending any ceremonial law, to not touching anything that was unclean, to not breaking Sabbath. Okay, this is what they did. Now, the scribes, they were, they were busy scribing out the scriptures. And the Sadducees, they were busy running the temple. But the Pharisees, they were busy being holy. That's what they did. They were the spiritual shepherds, supposedly, of Israel at the time when Jesus walks in. There's an immediate sense of competition there. So here they are in their perfect, untainted, holy robes. And they're looking at Christ. They're looking at Jesus. And they are Jaws are dropped to the floor. They can't believe that this rabbi is sitting in Matthew's house with the scum of Capernaum. They're completely offended by this. And so they react to it. And as the disciples come out, uh, note that they don't actually uh, talk to Jesus. They talk to the disciples. Look at verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Maybe they weren't quite ready to take on Jesus because they knew he'd shut him down, as he always did. So they're like, hey, let's go to talk to his disciples, and maybe we can own them. Hey, guys, why, why, is your, why is your boy, why is the guy you're following around, why is he hanging out with the scum of the earth right now? Why is he doing that? And where I really want to park with you guys for a minute is Jesus' response. He doesn't give the disciples a chance. He steps in like a good leader does. And he says, no, I'll answer that question. And with two verses, he cuts into the heart of the cancer that is destroying these Pharisees. And I want to point out, if you're a note taker, I want to point out quickly, this is not our application, but just point out a few things, four things in specific, that we learn about mercy from Jesus' response. Okay, so four things we learn about mercy from Jesus' response. The first is Jesus' model of mercy. We learn about Jesus' model of mercy. In other words, how Jesus believed mercy was accomplished. Take a look at verse 12. So Jesus opens his mouth ready to respond and defend why he's in this terrible house with these terrible people. Uh, in verse 12, he says, But when he heard it, what he, when he heard what they said, he said, to the, he said, quote, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. And you got to love Jesus. One liner. One liner. And he shuts him down. But listen to his logic here. Listen to what he's essentially he's saying. He, he's saying, guys, you're wanting to know why I'm sitting in this house with these terrible human beings that are so sick and so plagued. Now, he's not arguing that they're not sinners. Jesus isn't saying like, oh, no, uh, as the modern worldview would like us to believe. Like, maybe Jesus was affirming their sin. Maybe Jesus was saying it's okay to be in sin. No, it's not at all what was happening. Jesus isn't affirming it. What Jesus says, he says, I am a physician. He, he says, follow my logic here. You guys are intelligent Pharisees. Follow my logic. So if I'm a physician and these people are sick, and by the way, you're supposed to be physicians as well, spiritual leaders, quote, quote, if, if I'm a physician and these people are sick, where am I supposed to be? I'm supposed to be there with them. Because you see, what Jesus is saying is that a good doctor doesn't stand at 20 feet back writing a prescription 
and saying, yep, I think you have cancer. I think you're going to die. Have fun with that. It's not what a good doctor does. A good doctor gets his hands dirty. A good doctor sticks his two fingers on the artery of a patient so they don't bleed out. A good Doctor, when someone's heart stops, sticks the AED on them and shocks their heart back to life. A good doctor will break the ribs of the patient who has died in order to give them CPR to keep their heart pumping. You understand? The Pharisees are literally sitting there diagnosing the sickness of these men, completely unwilling to step in and fix anything. They had no mercy for these people. And Jesus is saying, I'll tell you what mercy is. Mercy is not standing back and identifying sickness. Mercy is plunging into it to make a difference. That's what mercy is, unlike the Pharisees. Now, side note application here. We're a whole lot better at the ch- as the church in general. We are a whole lot better as the church at diagnosing what's wrong with our culture than actually making a difference. We scream at our TVs, freaking liberals, Right? How many times have we said that? They're ruining the nation. What we are doing in that moment is what the Pharisees did. We're saying, you guys are sick. This country is sick. But are we doing anything about it? Are we doing anything about it? Jesus modeled what it looks like, and it does not look like sitting back, screaming political frustrations. It does not look like sitting back, yelling at homosexuals, frustrated with LGBT community. Okay? We identify that they're sick. We know that they're sick. They need Christ. They need the gospel. They don't need us as conservative Republicans to hate them. That eliminates our witness completely. The church, this is such a side note, (laughs) The church is doing such an injustice to the gospel with the LGBT community, with the homosexual community, because we are ostracizing them rather than reaching them with the gospel. Jesus is saying, I'm a physician. Where do you think I'm going to be? You think I'm going to be walking around with you with your long robes? No, I'm going to get in there and I'm going to fix this because I care, because I have mercy for these people. I have mercy for these people. Secondly, we see Jesus' manner of mercy. His manner of mercy. In other words, what Jesus believed mercy accomplished. Now, Jesus didn't have a wimpy view of mercy. Okay? He, didn't, he didn't have this idea of mercy that it was simply just making people feel better. And a lot of people um, in Christianity actually think that. Like, mercy just means feeding people. Well, maybe. And mercy just means alleviating the, the pain and the suffering. That's more kind of like social justice. It's not quite what Jesus had in mind when he's talking about mercy. Mercy isn't just feeling bad for people. Mercy isn't just being like, oh, I'm sorry, victim, let me me help you. Okay, that's more like compassion. Mercy is is very different. And Jesus' definition of mercy uh, was not just to alleviate the pain of people that were hurting and sick. Jesus' definition of mercy was the greatest good for those people. That's why Jesus didn't just stay and keep healing people. That's why healing people was, was great, and he did that to illustrate the kingdom of God and to show his power, but he didn't just heal people because he knew that was not really the issue. You can heal people all you want, but they're still dead in their trespasses and sins. They're still slaves to sin. 
So Jesus, because he is merciful, went straight to the issue and went to the cross so that he could eliminate the true enemy, which is sin and death, which has power over this world. He's merciful. He's not worried about just making things comfortable for people. That's not what he's doing here. He's not hanging out with the, fair, uh, hanging out with the sinners and the tax collectors so he can maybe make them feel good about themselves and preach a, a, a good about yourself kind of a sermon to them. It's not what he's doing. He's interested in alleviating the cancer so they can live like a good physician would do. That's what mercy is. It's not coddling. It's salvation. It's giving people the mercy of God. He wants the greatest good. And as a great physician, Jesus recognized two kinds of sick people in this scenario. This is what I love about this story, is that Jesus is looking at the sinners and the tax collectors, and he's looking at the Pharisees, and he says, you guys are both sick. You're both sick. You're suffering at different levels, but you're both sick. To the sinner, he says, you need mercy. And you know what they say? I know. I know. I know I need mercy. I am broken. The sinners are the easiest ones to convince that they're sinners because they know that they're sinners. The ones that are really dead, the ones that are really hard to save, are the ones that don't think they're sinners. And Jesus looks at the Pharisees with just as much compassion as he did the sinners. And he looks at them with just as much mercy, and he's just as merciful to the Pharisees. The issue is that he has five more layers of muck to get through in order to show them the gospel. The sinner already knows, I need mercy. The Pharisee says, I have no need. I'm ritually clean. I kept the Sabbath. I kept the Sabbath. I'm ritually clean. Jesus is merciful by diagnosing and being honest with the Pharisees. Mercy doesn't always mean not telling someone the truth. Mercy is telling the truth. Mercy is telling someone, you are, what did he call them? Whitewashed tombs. You're like a glass that is clean on the outside and moldy and disgusting on the inside. You are dead. Pharisees, you're dead in your false religion, in your false idea that you are saved by your own religious piety. And you can't even think about believing the gospel until you admit that. So you've got five layers to go before you're even ready to, to, to receive the mercy of God. But hear my point. Jesus' mercy was deeper than just alleviating external suffering. Number three. Jesus' measure of mercy. This is what Jesus believed mercy identified. See, Jesus, in this story, he uses mercy as a way of telling the heart of the Pharisees. This is why he quotes, if you look at the next verse, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He says, go learn what this means. I'll talk about that phrase in a minute. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, Jesus is quoting something there. Did you know that? He's not just saying that statement. He's not just telling the Pharisees, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's quoting an Old Testament prophet named Hosea in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And I want you to listen. Don't go there, but just listen to what the prophet Hosea says to Israel. And Jesus is, is connecting these two things here. He's connecting the heart and behavior of the Pharisees and the heart and behavior of Israel hundreds of years before. Hosea says this, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? 
What shall I do with you, O Judah? In other words, Israel, what am I going to do with you? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. In other words, your love, it's absolutely like, it's like rice cakes, man. There's nothing to it, right? Does that that work? I don't know. It's like a a cloud. It just, the, the smallest thing causes it to go away. I mean, it's, 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 it's so weak and pathetic, Israel, your love and your mercy and your justice to the, to the broken and to the oppressed and your sense of forgiveness. It's so pathetic. That's what God is saying to Israel. He says, therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. And here's what Jesus is quoting. He says, for I desire steadfast love, or as Jesus quotes it, mercy, not sacrifice. He says, I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant there, and they dealt falsely with me. Jesus is pointing back. These Pharisees would know this reference. They study the scriptures. Okay? That's what they do. So Jesus is pointing them back to Hosea chapter 6, where God is indicting Israel for their lack of mercy. And what he says in this is he's saying, I don't care that you make sacrifices. Doesn't matter. You have no mercy. What Jesus is doing is he's saying, Your lack of mercy shows me your true spiritual state. You can make sacrifices all you want. If you don't have mercy, nothing has changed in your heart. It's an illustration. Listen to what Jesus says later in the book of Matthew. This is such an epic verse. He says this in Matthew 23, 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Talking to the same people. Hypocrites, he says. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected, listen, the weightier matters of the law. Justice. Mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. You're obsessing about a gnat in your water, trying to get it out. And meanwhile, you've swallowed a camel. It's hyperbole at its finest, right? (laughs) Jesus is saying, you guys are so mixed up in your priorities. You have written volumes and volumes on how to keep the Sabbath. You just tie a string to your, I'm not even kidding you, you tie a string to your house, you can walk all the way into town as long as you're still connected to your house. This is the stupid things that the Pharisees spent all their time thinking about. This is the ridiculous stuff that they wrote volumes on how to keep the Sabbath. This is what they thought. They're straining this gnat trying to keep the Sabbath law. Meanwhile, they're neglecting the poor, they're not being merciful, they're not being faithful, they're not walking in justice, and Jesus is saying this lack of mercy illustrates the true desires of your heart. Jesus says the weightier matters of the law are justice and mercy and faithfulness. Why? Because they reflect God's nature, number one. Two, because they reflect the condition of your heart more than ritual or sacrifice. Okay, let me put this into context. Going to church means nothing to God if you are not merciful. He doesn't care. Sacrifice, giving of your tithes and your offerings and, and, and doing things for people that, that, that um, 
writing that check at Christmas time and sponsoring your kid in Africa. Those are all great things. And God says, I want you to do those things. But if you don't have mercy for the guy that just flipped you off in the car when he was driving by, who cares? And that happens all the time, right? Happens to me all the time, okay? <laughs> Some guy came up behind me today and just laid on his horn. I had no mercy for that guy. No mercy for him. God cares about mercy because, listen, this is important. God cares about mercy because you can't fake it. Did you know that? You can't fake mercy. You can fake sacrifice. You can fake works. You can fake your tithe. You can throw that check in there even though you really don't care. (laughs) You're just doing it so you don't feel guilty. But you can't fake how you feel about people that deserve justice. You You can't fake that. God's saying that that the way that you mercy illustrates the condition of your heart. And we would do well to consider the condition of our mercy. (laughs) I know I have this week. Fourth, Fourth thing, the fourth thing Jesus shows us about mercy here is whom Jesus was merciful towards. And this is the part that's shocking, surprising. Who is Jesus merciful towards uh, in this text? He's merciful towards those undeserving of mercy, the sinners. Okay? Matthew did not deserve mercy. He didn't. That's who Jesus is merciful towards. Who is he merciful towards? He's merciful towards those unaware of their need for mercy, the Pharisees. And furthermore, he is merciful towards those suffering from the power of sin, a.k.a. everybody, every human. Jesus was merciful to every human. Not every human was repentant, therefore not every human had sin forgiven, but Jesus was merciful toward every human being. Every human being. He saw them all as sick and in need. Now, I looked up the definition of mercy, and I think this is helpful because I think a lot of people think of mercy as simply, oh, I just feel bad for people that are victimized. And we should feel bad for people that are victimized. We should feel bad for the kids that are exiled in Africa out of their home because their parents were killed in in war, uh, in ethnic cleansings. We should feel so bad. That is absolutely a mandate. But that's not necessarily what mercy is. Mercy is actually a step further. You're not going to like it. You're really not going to like it. This is what the definition of mercy is. It is... And this is a secular definition. Compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone who it is in your power to punish or harm. And, and I'll add on to that even. Mercy is forgiving someone who actually deserves your hatred. Mercy is, is choosing to forgive. Now, that, that doesn't mean that they don't need to go to prison. That doesn't mean that they don't need justice to be served. Our God does not wink at unrighteousness. But in terms of your heart condition, this is the person that murders a family member. This is the person that has wronged you, that has abused you, that has hurt you, the person that took advantage of you, the person that, that knowingly, has wounded you so deeply that you cannot possibly imagine forgiving them, this is whom God is merciful towards. This is whom Jesus is merciful towards. Mercy is not feeling bad for the victim. Mercy is forgiveness for the unforgivable. It's choosing to forgive those that should not be forgiven. 
And there is no one more aware of sin and able to punish sin than Jesus. You say, well, yeah, but... No, Jesus knew the depths of the wickedness of the men he was forgiving. Jesus is the holy and righteous one who hates sin, who is offended by sin, and he forgave. He was willing to forgive sins. He was willing to show mercy. How much more are we called to do the same? And I asked myself this question. This is where it starts to get uncomfortable. Who am I least merciful towards? I have no problem being merciful to the kid that I see on the screen that's starving in Africa because of so many reasons that are beyond control. I, I feel merciful for them, but just about everyone does. Jesus is saying, as Christians, you're called to a higher standard of mercy, and that mercy actually goes to forgiving those that don't deserve it. Well, who, I, I did some soul-searching this week, and I asked myself, who am I least merciful towards? You know who the first number one group of people I'm least merciful towards? People that are above me. Okay, I'm not going political here. I have no mercy for our president, and I should. I should. Well, he's the president. Why do I have to be merciful for him? I could poke at him. I can make fun of him. I can say he's doing stupid things. I can think ill towards him. I can wish ill towards him because he's the president. He's up here, and I'm down here, so who cares if I throw rocks at him, right? Wrong. Doesn't matter if he deserves my mercy. Doesn't matter if he deserves my kindness. I am to mercy that man. I am to pray for that man. And I don't. Sometimes the people we are least merciful towards are the people that we think are supposed to be better than us because we love to see them burn. Because it shows that maybe they're not as great as they thought they were. I am so unmerciful to people that are above me. I'm so unmerciful when I see that the actor's marriage has fallen apart for the sixth time. And I say, ha, that's what you get for being in Hollywood. That's what you get for being a sinner. Where is the mercy in my heart to say this poor woman, this poor man has believed a lie that if she keeps marrying people and getting plastic surgery, that she will find hope? Where is my mercy for that person? They're dead and their trespasses and sins. They need a physician. They need the mercy of God. And I laugh at them. This is me confessing my own sin to you guys. I laugh at them. I mock them. That's what you get, Hollywood star. You know who else I'm very unmerciful towards? People that I think could be where I'm at if they would have tried harder. We drive through West Medford, and we look at people going to St. Vincent de Paul, and we see the people in the park, and we think, maybe subconsciously, those guys just couldn't get where I'm at. They just made some stupid decisions. You don't know their life. I don't know their life. They were probably abused at a young age. They were probably given substances at a young age. They were probably traumatized at a young age before they even had a choice of who their parents were. That doesn't write off their blame. It doesn't excuse their behavior, but we should be merciful towards them because that's how Jesus was. We should look at them with compassion bringing them the gospel and pointing them to the source of mercy, God himself. And you know who I'm least merciful for, towards? People that deserve justice. The man who shot 50 and killed 50 plus people and wounded 300 people. That man, if he was still alive, should be put to death. Do I have mercy for him? Do I think God can save that man? Do I think he deserves to be, well, he doesn't deserve to be in heaven. Do I think God could put him in heaven if God wanted to, if God wanted to pursue him? Is he forgivable? What Matthew is saying by inserting his story here is he's saying, hey, just so you guys know, Jesus can forgive anybody because this was the worst man in town. It was the worst man in town. 
And that's who Jesus called. Do I really see the people that deserve death? And do I really have hope for them that they would get saved? Or do I just want to see them fry so that justice can be served? Something I've really thought about and really wrestled with this week. And I'm overwhelmed by my lack of mercy. And I'm overwhelmed by, my, by how long it's been since I've even thought or asked myself these kinds of questions. So I'd like to give you guys, by way of application, three steps. Okay, three steps to becoming a more, a more merciful person. Okay, and this isn't going to be um, a go and do. This is going to be a stop and believe. Okay. This isn't going to be a, guys, here's 10 more things for you to do in your busy week. That's not this kind of application. I'm asking you guys not to do something. I'm asking you guys to believe something. Because I think if you believe something, your actions will change by nature. What we're going to talk about right now is not just mercy. It's gospel-shaped mercy, to borrow the words of Tim Keller. It's gospel-shaped mercy. In other words, it's mercy that is created in response to the gospel. What is the gospel? That Christ has done it all for me. Okay, so three steps, three steps to become a more merciful person. Number one, believe in your severe need for mercy. Believe in your personal severe need for mercy. Now, we all know that we were sinners. We all know that we didn't deserve the mercy and the grace of God. But do we really believe that? Do we really think that? I believe the level that we mercy people is directly tied to the level that we have been mercied or believe that we have been mercied by God. When you have been forgiven much, you love much. Isn't that true? We don't have mercy for people because we have forgotten oftentimes, and forget moment by moment how much mercy has been given to us. Now, how do we see our own need for mercy? Well, a few things. First of all, you can measure yourself against Christ's perfection. Instead of measuring yourself against your brother or sister whose marriage is worse than yours, whose kids are more disobedient than yours, whose house is less put together than yours, measure yourself against Christ. Read the Gospels and let the perfection of Jesus be your standard and let it illustrate to you your dire and eternal and massive need for the mercy of God. And as you believe your need for the mercy of God, you will become a merciful person. John Wesley wrote this. He said, I am falling short of the glory of God. My whole heart is altogether corrupt and abominable, and consequently my whole life. Seeing an evil tree cannot bring forth good fruit. Augustus Toplady, uh, the, the Christian uh, author and theologian, he said, oh, that such a wretch as I should ever be tempted to think highly of himself. I that am myself nothing but sin and weakness in whose flesh naturally dwells no good thing. This isn't beating yourself up to beat yourself up. In Christ we are saints, amen? But don't forget who you are apart from him. Paul said, I am the chiefest of sinners. Think about who you would be if God's grace had never intervened. Think about where you would be. I would not have the wife that I have. 
I would not have the job that I have. I would not have the kids that I have. I would not have the joy that I have. I would not have the peace that I have. I would have wrecked and shipwrecked my life. Praise God that he intervened and was merciful to me. Praise God that he was merciful to me. Let the word of God fillet you open every day. That's why we need to read our Bibles in the morning. We need to read our Bibles whenever, but the morning's a good time. Just start it off right away. Man, God, you are good and you are merciful to me. The Pharisees stopped reading the Bible in a way that actually challenged their own behavior and and, and just began to read it as a rule book. That's all they did. But it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. It is when we get into the scriptures and say, God, you were merciful to me. You can be merciful to anyone. And that is where we need to start. Number two, step number two. Believe in the sufficiency of Jesus' mercy for you. Okay? Um, And what I mean by that is this. Mercy is almost always done in three negative ways. Okay? So if you try to be merciful apart from believing the gospel, here's what it's going to look like. First, it's going to look like this. It's going to be a patronizing mercy. Patronizing mercy means I'm going to mercy you and I'm going to forgive you because I actually think I'm better than you and I'm going to help you become like me. That's patronizing mercy. It's disgusting. You ever had someone be merciful to you in a patronizing way? Let me just help you be as awesome as me. Okay? That's patronizing mercy. I'm better than you, so let me fix you. The second way that we mercy, apart from believing the gospel, is a guilt-relieving mercy. Okay, you ever wonder why, why people that are non-Christians are, are, are so merciful sometimes in terms of how they do things and what they do things? It's because they're relieving guilt. I need to forgive so that I can be forgiven. It's a failure to believe the gospel, right? And number three, uh, a self-serving way. In other words, I'm going to mercy you because it feels good. It actually releases endorphins when you're generous. Do you know that? It releases endorphins in your mind. It makes you feel good. That's why it feels good to give sometimes. It feels good to give Christmas presents, man. It's fun. It releases endorsements. It may have nothing to do with believing the gospel. The second step is to believe in the sufficiency of Jesus' mercy for you because if his mercy is enough for you, then you have no reason to be merciful other than simply as a response to his mercy. Instead of saying, I'm better than you, let me fix you, you say, I am the chiefest of sinners. I have no problem crawling into the muck of your life because that's where I deserve to be. Jesus had no problem going to that house, right? I have no need to do mercy out of guilt because my guilt is nailed to the cross. I have no need that is not already met in person of Christ. I don't need to mercy to feel good about myself. I don't need to mercy so I can have endorphins released because everything I need is met in Christ. You see how believing the gospel is the start of this? I am forgiven. And Jesus' mercy is enough for me. Therefore, I can be merciful. And number three... Step number three, believe the sufficiency of Jesus' mercy for others. Not only believe the sufficiency of Jesus' mercy for you, believe the sufficiency of Jesus' mercy for others. And what I mean by that is, listen, guys, you do not have the power to produce true mercy. You just don't. You can try until you're blue in the face, but there is one source of ultimate mercy and forgiveness. There is one man who can forgive sins, and that is Jesus Christ. And so our job is not to just be merciful. Our job is to bring people to the merciful one. It's exactly what Matthew did. He encountered the mercy of Christ. He grabbed his friends and he took them to the feet of Christ. He said, let me take you to the source of mercy. 
I want to read a scripture to you and then we're going to close. Ephesians chapter 2, 4 through 8 says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised, us, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. When Mila asked me, why does Jesus love us? That's what I told her. That's what I told her. I said, because, sweetheart, Jesus is love. But Jesus wanted to share that love. Jesus is mercy. But Jesus wanted to share that mercy. There was like, there was an attribute of God that had not been discovered by heavenly beings. And in order to do that, he needed a being he could forgive. And so by his mercy, he's forgiven us so that all of the heavens can look and see, wow, the mercy of God. Now, I want to ask you guys, as you go today and as you go this week and attempt to be merciful, don't try to produce it yourself because you can't. Say, I know the merciful one, and I'd like to bring you to him. I'd like to tell you about this Jesus that has eternal mercy for you, that can save even Matthew, that can save the worst. It says in Peter that we are stewards of God's grace. I love that. We're carrying it around, and we're saying, hey, can I, can I give you something? Can I tell you about this source of mercy? And just pass that on to you. That's what evangelism is. It's not about having some witty argument and convincing someone of something. It's about being a steward of grace. Can I just tell you about the mercy of Christ and how it's affected me? It's all evangelism is. Amen? Let's all stand. Father, I thank you tonight, God, just for how good you are, how good your word is. Um, I thank you for the truth of the word. Lord, I thank you that it, it cuts us in a way that is healthy, that we need, God. And Lord, is, is so much sickness in this room tonight, including my own heart. There's so much that needs to be fixed and changed and transferred into your kingdom. And I just pray tonight that by the Holy Spirit, that, that the word would have its way with us, that we would go and become more merciful than we were when we came in because we are overwhelmed by your mercy for us, God. Um, so thank you, Jesus, for dying for our sins so that we could be with you forever in heaven. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys have a great evening. We'll see you Sunday.